This is BT Techno, a regular podcast series for financial advisors wanting to remain at the forefront of strategy, regulatory and industry news. Well, hi everyone and welcome to this week's Techno Podcast. I'm Sarah Conti and I'm the Senior Manager, Advice Technical and Regulatory for BT. I'm part of the BT Technical Services team, a group of qualified individuals who can help you as advisors answer any technical advice strategy related queries you may have. In October 2021, we saw the scope of the breach reporting regime expanded, requiring AFSLs and credit licensees to notify ASIC of all reportable situations in writing. The ASIC Corporations and Credit Amendment Instrument 2023 forward slash 589 make changes to reporting requirements and provides an extended period for reporting breaches. Joining me for the podcast today to discuss these changes and what they mean for advisors is Donna Penny, Victorian State Manager, Corporate Governance for the Principals Community. Donna is a compliance specialist with experience ranging from senior compliance roles in large dealer groups through to her current role helping self-licensed firms navigate the ever-changing regulatory landscape. Welcome to the podcast, Donna. Thanks for having me, Sarah. It's great to be here. Donna, it certainly appears to be an ever-changing landscape that advisors are navigating when it comes to the volume of regulatory change. One area where we have seen some changes is around breach reporting. Before we get stuck into the detail, can you remind our listeners what a reportable situation is? Sure, Sarah. A reportable situation arises in a few different ways. First of all, where a breach or a likely breach of a core obligation is deemed significant. And all breaches that are deemed significant must be reported to ASIC within 30 calendar days upon becoming aware of or having reasonable grounds to believe the breach will occur or being reckless with respect to whether a reportable situation has arisen. So there's quite a few deemed significant breaches. They include where there may be a penalty that could include imprisonment for three months or more if it involves dishonesty, 12 months or more in any other case, breaches of a civil penalty provision, if the provision is not exempted under the regulations, misleading and deceptive conduct, which is the substance of the changes that we'll talk about a bit later, or material loss or damage where a financial product or a financial service is provided. So they're the deemed significant breaches. Then secondly, you've got breaches or likely breaches of a core obligation that are otherwise reportable. And these are otherwise reportable if they're assessed as significant having regard to factors like the number or frequency of similar breaches, the impact of the breach or the likely breach on the licensee's ability to supply financial services, the extent to which the breach or the likely breach indicates that the licensee's arrangements to ensure compliance are inadequate, and any other matters prescribed by the regulations, and currently there are no other matters. Thirdly, licensees have to report where an investigation is continuing beyond 30 days. So you have 30 days to report a matter. If you're still not sure and day 31 rolls around, you have to report to ASIC that you're investigating a significant breach of a core obligation. Fourthly, conduct that constitutes gross negligence or serious fraud. And then finally, reportable situations about other licensees and their financial advisors where it relates to personal advice provided to retail clients. Yeah, look, recently ASIC Instrument 2023-589 made some changes around the automatic notifications to ASIC about significant breaches of core obligations. Donna, can you shed some light on these modifications? Sure. The instrument 
excluded certain matters for being reportable. And ASIC in the explanatory statement uh, have made it clear that they're trying to ease the regulatory burden for licensees arising from reportable situation that offer limited or no regulatory benefit. So ASIC having a look at it feels that there's nothing to be gained from pursuing this. They've decided perhaps the bar's been set a little high. First of all, the instrument excludes certain breaches of the misleading and deceptive conduct and the false and misleading misrepresentation provisions. Bit of a mouthful. <laughs> These were automatically a reportable situation, which meant that a single instance was reportable. Now, to qualify for the exclusion under the instrument, the reportable situation must only impact one person or where it's a jointly owned investment, just that couple or just the joint owners. Uh, it can't result in financial loss to a client irrespective of whether the licensee is planning to compensate financial loss. So if a loss has occurred and it's been compensated, then it doesn't qualify. And secondly, licensees now have up to 90 days, up from 30 days, where they first know or are aware of um, a reportable situation has arisen if the underlying circumstances are the same or substantially similar to underlying circumstances of a previous reportable situation. So ASIC acknowledged that there's a burden associated with licensees having to investigate a reportable situation under Notify, Investigate, Remediate. 30 days was a short time frame to investigate the breadth of similar instances occurring. So ASIC has given that, um, that extra time up from 30 days to 90 days. And in doing so, they expect that the additional time should contribute to better reporting outcomes and more timely rectification by licensees. Donna, could you provide some examples of how the new changes would work in practice? I can. ASIC has helpfully provided an example in the explanatory statement that accompanied the instrument. So the example ASIC gave, and this is as good as any, is that a statement of advice given to a client contains an error that the advisor rectifies with the client promptly, and the error involves no actual or expected financial loss to the client. And the error also does not result in any other reportable situation. For example, maybe the SOA, you know, a, a typo resulted in a fee being incorrectly typed. Now, subsequent to that SOA, the client was given an ongoing service agreement that disclosed the correct fee. They signed the consent form that also disclosed the correct fee. So in that case, the defective SOA has not given rise to a loss. There's no client loss. The client consented to the correct fee with the information in front of them and therefore is not necessarily reportable any longer. So Donna, on the surface, these changes appear to make things less onerous for advisors and licensees. What are the benefits you see for advisors with these changes? That's a really good question for advisors. Uh, I'll talk about for advisors and for licensees. For advisors, it means that one isolated contravention of the misleading and deceptive or false and materially misleading representation, which would have previously been reportable, such as that example I just mentioned, is no longer going to be reportable. For the advisor, that means their name is no longer going to be attached to a report made to the regulator. I say that, of course, it may still be reportable if it's affected more than one client, if it has been compo payable. So in terms of these mistakes occurring, it's still important that advisors raise them with the licensee. So in terms of the actual day-to-day for the advisors, probably very little has changed. When a mistake happens, it still needs to be reported to a compliance team so it can be internally assessed. But for an advisor, it just means a reportable situation with their name attached to it is not necessarily arising. And we know that ASIC has a data cube into which all the reportable situations and industry analytics are fed. 
and they use data analysis um, and machine learning to identify red flags. So while not every report attracts human attention, obviously an advisor having the name attached to a breach report is going to feel a little bit nervous. So that's, I guess that's one benefit to the advisor. Apart from that, not a lot of change. As I said, they need to remember that even if it's not reportable, any incident, any error that you find still needs to be reported internally to compliance. So it can be added to internal registers. And as tempting as it is to fix a mistake, advisors tend to be very good at identifying mistakes and fixing them for their clients. There's a lot of client care. Fixing things the wrong way or not knowing the right way to fix something can cause an even bigger problem. So once again, telling the compliance team is really important. And so from that aspect, there's not a great deal of change at the advisor level. Uh, What may reduce is the licensees um, need to report these matters as they arise. Yeah, look, recently ASIC released its second publication on insights from the reportable situations regime. What were their findings and what are the key takeaways for advisors from this update? What I just spoke about leads quite nicely into this, actually, and you'll see why in a minute. So in ASIC's latest insights report, they found that only 9% of licensees had reported a breach or lodged a reportable situation in the period from 1 July 2022 until 30 June 23. Now, 9% is up from the 6% that had reported this time last year, but it's still very low. It's also worth noting that this report covered a full 12-month period, whereas the previous report ASIC released last year only covered from October 2021 when the new regime took effect. Another note is that 44% of matters reported this time around related to false and misleading statements, which contextualises the instrument that ASIC has made giving relief for certain occurrences where there's been no client harm and isolated to a single instance. So ASIC has started work to drive improved compliance with the reportable situations regime. They've commenced industry surveillance to check whether licensees are complying with their obligations, particularly where they believe that the number of situations reported or the lack of situations reported may not be consistent with the nature, scale and complexity of the licensee. Now, we know that last year ASIC wrote to licensees simply reminding them of their reporting obligations. We're aware of a few licensees getting a letter from ASIC post their report last year, just reminding them of their obligations and suggesting that they review their internal processes. Based on ASIC's communications and their their corporate plan, we're expecting this year that to go a little bit further and they may start issuing notices. So they might issue notices to get copies of licensees' breach policies or the reportable situations policies and ask for registers to give them a quick insight into does this licensee know what a reportable situation is? Does their register suggest that they have appropriate detection mechanisms in place? Are things being picked up? Are they being assessed? So a licensee without a current breach policy would have reason to be nervous by this. And a licensee with no incidents in their registers may also have cause to be nervous. Mistakes tend to happen. So making sure that um, things are getting reported through, getting a bit curious. ASIC will probably get curious if registers are empty. They they may come out for a site visit. They may ask for sort of, please explain, what are you doing to detect issues? So for advisors, the takeout's a repeat of what I said before. You need to make your licensee or your compliance team aware of all the errors and incidents when you pick them up. This means your licensee is going to be in a stronger position to demonstrate that they have measures to identify, assess and record what could be potentially reportable situations, which puts them in turn in a stronger position with ASIC should this surveillance occur. Yeah, great insights, Donna. Given ASIC's findings, 
What are the three key things advisors and licensees need to be aware of when it comes to breach reporting? Because the headline finding of the report is ASIC's belief that licensees are underreporting, that's what I'll focus on. There are a few key reasons why it's so important for advisors to make sure all their incidents, errors, breaches, it doesn't matter what you call them, mistakes, are reported through to their compliance team and captured on the internal incidents register. As I mentioned before, advisors tend to be very good at fixing things for their clients where they've identified an error, which is fantastic, but it's important to report it for a few reasons. First of all, if we're fixing mistakes that we've identified without reporting them to our licensee, the licensee might be inadvertently breaching its reporting obligations, which is what we've just talked about. For example, if a fee disclosure statement was issued late, the advisor might just go, oh gosh, whoops, I'll, I'll fix that now. I'll, I'll prepare the FDS, you know, 65 days of elapsed since the anniversary date. I'll just prepare the FDS and send it now. Problems solved. But an FDS not issued by day 60 after the anniversary date terminates the ongoing fee arrangement. Issuing an FDS late doesn't actually reinstate that ongoing fee arrangement, so it remains terminated unless a new one is entered into. And then if, if a fee continues to be received after that termination, the fee recipient is in breach of Section 962P, which is a civil penalty provision to receive a fee after an ongoing fee arrangement is terminated, and that is reportable to ASIC under the regime for every single isolated instance. So three things have happened here. Your licensee might have breached this reportable situation's obligations because an issue that is probably reportable didn't get raised to be assessed and reported. The fees received subsequent to the 60-day FDS deadline aren't valid because no ongoing fee arrangement technically exists anymore. The fix, which was where we sent the late FDS, didn't actually reinstate the ongoing fee arrangement. A new one actually has to be commenced. And thirdly, you've probably contravened your representative agreement or your terms of employment with your licensee which requires you to report all matters of non-compliance. So then it sort of becomes a conduct issue. Now, ASIC understand that administrative errors happen. They're probably more likely to come down and scrutinise closer if, if a conduct issue gets reported. So while well-intended, fixing a mistake, it's really important that you let the compliance team know. And of course, for the licensees or compliance managers or responsible managers or, or anybody in a position of leadership in a licensee of any size that, that is listening, the key takeouts are to be comfortable that matters are being reported. Create a culture of compliance by making it okay and acceptable that mistakes happen and you know that the right thing to do is to raise them and we can fix them. Obviously, staff that feel intimidated or belittled or feel stupid when they report things is going to lead to an issue of um, probably less things being reported, but that doesn't mean less mistakes happening. So making it a positive experience, but also making sure that something constructive happens, something's learned from, processes are put in place to prevent future recurrence is really important. And making sure detection measures are in place outside of just relying on your people identifying and reporting and outside of taking people's word for things, make sure your data's telling you that things are as they should be. And that could be monitoring and supervision. It could be reporting on your ongoing fee clients where FDSs are coming up for due or fee can sense are due to be returned, whatever it might be. And finally, understanding your reporting obligations, because they are tricky. There's some 400 civil penalty provisions that are deemed significant, which means reportable for a single instance. And even though several of these were carved out by regulations that were made um, shortly after this legislation came in, it's still important to know what is reportable for a single instance so that you can get onto it quickly. So having a robust process in place for assessing matters that have arisen is really important as well. 
Yeah, great insights, Donna, and certainly lots of things for advisors to consider when dealing with breach reporting. Thanks very much for your time today and for sharing your insights on this important topic. You're most welcome. Thank you for having me again. Now, if you have any questions about the changes or any other advice-related strategy queries, you can contact the BT Technical Services team on 1-800-655-901 And you can also join us for our regular fortnightly BT Academy webinar series where we discuss all things technical and regulatory in the world of financial advice. Matt Manning will be presenting business insurance in our next webinar, episode 90, on Wednesday, 6 December at midday, Australian Eastern Daylight Saving Time. Business insurance helps minimise disruptions to the operation of a business upon the death or disablement of a key person or business owner. This session will look at a number of case studies to help assist you in identifying a client's business insurance needs, the ownership options and taxation outcomes of both key person and buy-sell business insurance. You can register for this session by heading to www.bt.com.au forward slash professional and follow the links to the BT Academy webinar series. All our webinars are accredited for CPD and can be watched on demand if you can't join us live. Until next time, thanks for listening and bye for now. BT Tech knows, and now you know. Join us next time to keep ahead of the curve for strategy, regulatory and industry news. This podcast has been developed for financial advisor use only and provides general information only. It does not take into account any particular individual's objectives, financial situations or needs.